Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. The National Center for Health Statistics reported that more than 107,000 people died from drug overdoses in the year 2021. More than three quarters of overdose deaths involved opioids. Recent research suggests the estimates that the number of adults living with opioid use disorder, or OUD, ranges from 6.7 million to 7.6 million. These estimates suggest that one to two of every 100 U.S. residents has OUD. Increasing access to OUD treatment would reduce the number of people who seek drugs in a dangerous black market and in turn would reduce the incidence and risk of overdose deaths. In the United States, federal and state laws segregate people with OUD who seek treatment with methadone, requiring them to travel to government-approved opioid treatment programs, or OTPs, where staff must directly observe them ingesting the methadone and where the government imposes strict limits on when and how much methadone patients can take home. These federal and state regulations discriminate against, stigmatize, and dehumanize opioid users. They also limit access to methadone treatment for many people who need and can benefit from such treatment. Joining us to discuss ways to improve access to methadone treatment are, uh, on my left, uh, the far left, is uh, Jeffrey H. Samet, MD, MA, MPH. Dr. Samet is a professor of medicine at the Boston University Chobanian and Avidisian School of Medicine and a professor of community health services at the Boston University School of Public Health. As a past president and founding member of the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he was integral to creating the new subspecialty of addiction medicine in the year 2016. Helen Redman, Helen is a licensed clinical social worker and an expert on drug addiction and drug treatment. She's an adjunct assistant professor at New York University. Helen's a senior editor and a multimedia journalist at Filter. She's also a documentary filmmaker and co-directed the feature-length film Liquid Handcuffs, a documentary to free methadone, and the short documentary Swallow This, a documentary about methadone and COVID-19. She's currently screening Swallow This at venues across the United States. Representative Donald Norcross, who has represented New Jersey's first congressional district in South Jersey since 2014, will be here soon to join us, and I'll introduce him when he arrives. After each of our distinguished panelists speaks, I'll open it up to questions and answers from our in-person audience, as well as those watching online on our event page and on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, X, sorry. Uh, please be sure to use the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. Before uh, introducing our first speaker, I want uh, to uh, uh, draw attention to a new policy analysis, uh, if we could have the first slide, uh, that uh, Cato Institute released on September 7th that I co-authored with Sophia Hamilton, who's in the audience. Sophia is a Cato Research Associate in Health Policy, uh, Health Policy Studies, and you can pick up copies of, of this policy analysis at the sign-in desk outside, or you can access them online on Cato's home or on Cato's homepage. But I'm just going to briefly summarize a few points here. Researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health published a study in 2018 that shows the overdose rate has actually been on an exponential growth trend since at least, late, at least 1979 and shows no signs of slowing. Different drugs have predominated at various times over the decades, but the trend has been relentless. And a year later in 2019, a Joint Economic Committee of Congress report 
found that overdoses actually began rising in the year 1959. There's good reason to believe that sociocultural and psychosocial dynamics are at play here, as a growing number of people are choosing to use potentially dangerous drugs non-medically, either for recreational use or for self-medication. In fact, uh, uh, Ted Cicero and colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis published in 2017 uh, a study showing that more than 33% of heroin addicts who were admitted for rehab said that they initiated their non-medical drug use with heroin. That's in 2015, uh, a third of heroin addicts, their gateway drug to heroin was heroin. Uh, that same study performed 10 years earlier had that at, at roughly 9%. The majority at that time said their gateway drug was diverted prescription pain pills. So as I mentioned earlier, expanding access to OUD treatment would reduce the number of people who seek drugs in the black market and in turn reduce the risk and incidence of overdose deaths. Federal law requires people to seek treatment for OUD uh, at, at, at OTPs or op opioid treatment programs which are approved by the Drug Enforcement Administration and regulated by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration or SAMHSA. Our paper that details the burdensome requirements and restrictions these federal agencies place on OTPs and on patients. Um, this is one major reason why there are not nearly enough OTPs to serve the population with opioid use disorder. Only about 400,000 people with opioid use disorder received methadone treatment in the year 2019, while 1.6 million U.S. residents reported they developed opioid use disorder that year. Adding to the problem, states impose their own restrictions and regulations on OTPs. Some impose certificate of need requirements. Some states cap the number of OTPs and some have imposed moratoria on new OTPs in their state. Also, not in my backyard or NIMBYism by residents plays a significant role in limiting the number of OTPs that are able to open up in communities. Some states also impose their own sets of restrictions on OTPs dispensing take-home methadone and other practices that go beyond uh, SAMHSA's own requirements. Um, uh, that was about the states that we, okay. Um, our paper examines the approaches to methadone treatment that have been the norm in the UK, Canada, and Australia for more than 50 years. In those countries, primary care providers treat opioid use disorder with methadone, often coordinating with local pharmacies. Government regulators allow practitioners much more leeway to use their clinical judgment and knowledge of their patients in their treatment protocols. This has vastly expanded access to methadone treatment in those countries. This, this slide com uh, compares Australia to the US, for example. In Australia, there are 13 patients per methadone prescribing practitioner. There are 190 patients per methadone treatment location in the United States. Our paper reviews the experiences of pilot programs in the United States that allow primary care practitioners to provide methadone treatment in the office setting, as well as the results of, of a COVID pandemic-induced pilot program that temporarily relaxed restrictions on take-home methadone. We concluded that lawmakers 
uh, in the United States should reform laws on the federal and state levels to allow primary care clinicians to engage in methadone treatment in the office setting. This would not only expand access to treatment, but by treating people with opioid use disorder in the office setting, uh, as we treat people with other physical and mental health disorders, we would be removing the stigma and dehumanization of people with opioid use disorder. Um, so now, I'd like to, uh, I'd be happy to take more questions about our paper later, but I'd like to, and I encourage you to read it, but at this point, I'd like to introduce our first uh, speaker, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Samet. So let me invite Dr. Samet up here. Thank you. UD and potential reforms to opioid treatment programs. So what you can see here <coughs> is a depiction of countries with the United States um, at the top for the highest drug-related death rates from opioids. All right, may not be a surprise. This is Commonwealth Fund data. But this slide here then shows the same countries, more or less, and the amount of MOUD available for a person with OUD. So I'd say we're in a bit of a crisis, right? It's the country with the most deaths, with the least medications that we know saves lives. <clears throat> so we're talking today about methadone. And just to give some perspective, methadone experience as a maintenance treatment for opioid use disorder was first described in JAMA in 1965. So it's been around for a long time. And the rules got created uh, in the years following that report so that there are highly restrictive uh, uh, programs, which we'll talk about a little bit. But methadone treatment has done a lot of good over those years, the 40 years since, and since the 2005, the tw almost 20 years since that. <clears throat> So Dr. Singer asked me to give a little bit of an uh, intro. Not everybody would be up to speed on methadone. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of that for you. What is methadone? It's a full opioid agonist. That means it works the same way as uh, um, heroin does, right? It, it meets the mu receptor in the brain. Um, full opioid agonist. Suppresses opioid withdrawal because it is a full opioid agonist. If someone is withdrawing, you give them methadone, you'll fix their withdrawing very quickly. <clears throat> Sorry. There's opioid blockade. What's opioid blockade? That's when you have enough of the methadone on board to not get the euphoric effects of using other drugs. So you block the effects of other opioids. That's called opioid blockade. And it eliminates drug craving. So when someone is on daily methadone, they're not thinking about where they're going to get their next use. Their craving really is taken care of. And um, we've learned over time that some of the brain changes that occur as a result of opioid use disorder get normalized. Okay, another thing about methadone that you've heard already a bit is that the programs are highly structured, the opioid treatment programs. And typically, people go in, certainly in the beginning, they go in and they get daily observed uh, medications. And they can earn take-homes, but I won't go into those details. 
but the legislation right now is the take-homes before COVID especially were uh, um, uh, pretty restrictive. So why are we talking about methadone? This slide will tell you that because, oh my God, methadone is a great medication. It's just a great medication. Over the years, the following have been shown. It increases treatment retention, treatment for opioid use disorder. It decreases illicit opioid use. It decreases hepatitis C and HIV infection. Decreases mortality, which we talked about before briefly. Decreases criminal activity, increases employment, improves birth outcomes. This is a great medication. So getting it to people in an appropriate way is uh, a, ma a major appropriate goal. So this just shows, and um, the quote is from the Nar Narcotic Addict Treatment Act of 1974. I looked this up to tell you through in preparation for this talk because I hadn't seen, I mean, we, we work according to it, but I hadn't really looked at the words. And I realized, I called a friend who knew more about this than I did, that all the regulations happened after the Narcotic Act. Um, and those, as Dr. Singer talked about, involving SAMHSA and the DEA. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, but it's useful to know that there's a lot of good care going on with opioid treatment programs. There are 1,800 programs in the U.S. and about 400,000 patients available. But as you'll see, 400,000, great number, but totally insufficient. Okay, limitations of OTP, opioid treatment programs. They're highly regulated, as we've mentioned, can be inconvenient and can be highly punitive mixes stable and unstable patients, lack of privacy typically, limited ability to graduate from the program. Some people do, but some people don't, many people don't. Limited access, six states only have three or fewer clinics. One state has no clinics. And perhaps the biggest barrier is the stigma that's associated. And um, that's something we all need to work on. This book came out talking about medications for opioid use disorder, so it included buprenorphine and uh, naltrexone as well. But it came out from the National Academy of Medicine uh, just a few years ago. And um, it talks about the delay between <coughs> o OUD, opioid use disorder onset, and medications for opioid use disorder receipt, four to seven years. That's if you get the medication, because remember, the vast majority with the disorder, don't get the medication. Blacks have less than half the odds of initiating MOUD than whites. Stigma towards addiction, individuals with OUD and the medications to treat it. So these are the big barriers that this, I, this uh, National Academy of Medicine report talked about. And inedu inadequate education of health professionals. I'm a health professional, we do a lot of educating, but there are a lot of health professionals out there, so we gotta do more. Uh, this is an article that we wrote, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine about six years ago. Um, and uh, actually I was on a jog and I've always wanted to get methadone in primary care because it seemed like we just needed more access to it. Um, but 
on the jog, I thought like, it, it was the jog around the anniversary, I think, of the landing on the moon, or one of the anniversaries. And that the whole thing, one small step. So he said, we named it one small step for Congress, one giant leap for addiction treatment. I actually do think it would be a giant leap for addiction treatment. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so the points up there is that methadone has been available in other countries, as Dr. Singer mentioned, Australia, Canada, Great Britain, not just in opioid treatment programs. Um, and they are doing okay. Pharmacy delivers the medication. And there's a rich experience, which if someone's worried about um, uh, safety, that speaks to some of the, the safety concerns not to be overblown. Yep. And so the second point in the article made the point that we've already made about limiting it to, to uh, treatment programs misses opportunity to give it in a broader setting. And yes, the rural settings, which is really, really hard because opioid treatment programs don't open up in rural settings very often, right? Um, this is an opportunity to get treatment in rural settings for people who may see primary care docs in that setting. Um, this just uh, um, is an article. There is remarkably little in the literature from the US about methadone treatment in primary care. It's not impossible to do, but it's really complicated and difficult. Um, and you're connected with a methadone program. But these guys in University of Washington wrote up their 30 patients who were graduates, you could say, of methadone programs. They graduated into primary care because they were so stable. And those stable people basically went in and got 30-day take-homes and saw the primary care doc once a month. And the outcomes were great for their addiction, but they actually they found out that their medical care got better as well. And that's what some of the data on this says. This is um, a, a quote that I put in that article in the New England Journal, just because we had one of those programs where two of us at Boston Medical Center um, had methadone in primary care for a limited number of patients. 15 total patients was all we could, was what the arrangement was for. But one of these patients who I had seen, and we had it for a number of years, one of these patients that I had seen for a few years said to me one day, um, Oh yeah, receiving my methadone in primary care is like winning the lottery. No, even better. Um, so it just, it's so meaningful. And you think about all the barriers, how many barriers doing that removes. So, okay, uh, we probably would have done it to begin with, you know, when, when it began perhaps, but there were concerns about prescribing methadone in primary care. So let's talk a little bit about those concerns. Um, well, there's safety concerns. And I, the safety concerns are spoken most about the trade organization, ATOD, you see the American Association for Treatment of Opioid Dependence, and they write that it's really important that our zeal to improve the ex, uh, accessibility of treatment and help more people get well, which is the goal, we don't um, <clears throat> implement change at the expense of safety. I think that's a fair statement. But I think the data is um, on the side of that we won't. We should certainly measure it and look at it. 
um, but uh, that shouldn't stop us. The other quote here was that the uh, ATOD, it's called, president said there were 5,500 to 6,000 methadone deaths from 1999 to 2015. We do not want to exacerbate this problem. Those were deaths where methadone showed up in the urine tox screen. And um, in the small print you can see there, I can't see, but uh, in that same period, 351,000 people died of, of opioid overdose. So uh, relative concerns. Um, there are some papers that write about the safety concerns, this 2017 systematic review of methadone treatment. Three of the papers uh, dealt with, because it was international, uh, with methadone in general uh, practitioner setting and showed similar safety concerns to any other setting. Uh, due to COVID, SAMHSA opened up the, the rules around how much take-home methadone you could have, because it wasn't safe for people to be coming in every day to get their methadone. And these 28-day take-homes became often the norm. And this report by CDC below basically says that there's no evidence from that experience, which is really a natural experience um, from the change of laws due to COVID, that there was any uh, uh, worries in terms of safety. Um, so I put this one in here. It's not a typical medical journal. But it is written by the president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, which I'd say is a, um, uh, uh, has the interests of addiction medicine docs um, and addiction and patients with addictions um, at their interest. And um, I'm going to step back and read it because I think it's kind of interesting. It says, some health professionals have expressed concerns that a big increase in access to methadone could lead to new safety issues. However, when methadone is managed by trained physicians who arrange for dispensing by community pharmacies, it can be handled in a medically appropriate way. Inaction is a much greater threat than patient safety. And that's by the president and representing the organization. Um, so this is our current state, graphically. OTP only for the treatment of opioid use disorder versus Australia, Canada, Great Britain, where there's both primary care and OTP. And this is a possible future, we think. We think it would be, a, a, or I think it would be a step in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Samet. Um, Helen Redman has produced powerful documentaries addressing the problems with methadone access and poor treatment many people with OED receive. We're fortunate to have Helen here with us today, so I'd like to invite Helen up to the podium. Okay, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. I know methadone isn't the most popular uh, topic in the United States, but for those of us, it's, it's really important. And I want to just start my presentation about talking about where does the methadone clinic system come from? It's been ex in existence for about 50 years, but most people don't know the origins of the system or they have a convenient amnesia about how this system this highly punitive system developed. And it, it was created um, under the Richard Nixon administration. Uh, Nixon, a known racist, uh, unleashed the war on drugs, which is 
directly targeted at communities of color. And so it, it begins under uh, Nixon and uh, at the same time, there's a number of things happening. Methadone is discovered, and research is being done in New York, Rockefeller University. Uh, here in D.C., Robert DuPont, who was one of uh, Nixon's uh, drug czars, and Jerome Jaffe. So you've got people looking at methadone, researching, and realizing it works. And most of this research was done with black folks, and uh, here in D.C., it was done in jails. And so Nixon um, is looking at crime statistics. Uh, heroin use is uh, dramatically increasing. And he's looking at crime. Um, there's urban rebellions for um, civil rights going on in the early 70s, right? You've got a confluence of, of things happening. And so Nixon is really concerned about crime. And they're linking heroin use to committing crimes to black people. That's the sort of the trifecta that is coming together. And so methadone, they know, uh, as the doctors have explained, works really well uh, to keep people from craving. And so they decide to create these clinics. And <clears throat> when you look at how clinics function, you realize it's really about social control. It's about control, contain, and confining mostly black people, some brown folks as well, right, L the Latino community. If you look at the way these clinics have been structured, it's really easy to see that. <clears throat> I also need to mention that the Drug Enforcement Administration was heavily involved in uh, the creation of, of clinics. They worked with the Nixon administration. They worked with Robert DuPont. They are a central presence in the formations of clinics. And that is a huge problem. These are the drug warriors. These are the people who are enforcing prohibition, who are enforcing it in mostly communities of color. Of course, it's a total failure on many levels. And so to have cops, and I know Dr. Singer has written about this, cops in the middle of medicine is just unacceptable and we have to get the DEA out and they've been involved from the beginning and it is a massive problem if you want to help people live. So you've got all of that coming together and this is why people in black communities from Baltimore to Harlem, because most clinics are in urban centers, are saying this is a form of social control. And some people even went so far as to say this is another form of slavery. You're controlling people with this system. So I want to now move into what happens in clinics. How is this carceral system actually, does, does it work? Um, and what they've created is essentially a, what we call a culture of cruelty controlling, containing, and confining. And so if you can go to the first slide, please. Uh, am I controlling that? Uh, you control, you, you work the slides. Okay. The green arrow in the middle. That looks a little bit like cannabis. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay, I wanna go back now. Okay. So, Methadone is almost always given to people in liquid form, and a methadone clinic director told me that this is because of the DEA. 
So the DEA finds it much easier to track methadone if it's given liquid. But liquid is really impractical for people, right? It's much easier to take a pill. If you earn the privilege of take-home bottles, say you get 14, that's 14 bottles of liquid. You want to go to the airport. You want to travel, right? It's cumbersome. It's also very stigmatizing. So most clinics, you have to... Uh, get liquid. There's a few clinics that I've heard across the country that uh, allow people to take, take it in pill form or wafer, but overall it's, it's liquid. Clinic hours. There are essentially windows of times that people can get their, their medication. This is something in interviews that I've done across the country for years now that patients tell me is very anxiety producing, um, you have to go to a clinic six to seven days a week, right? Your whole life revolves around getting to this clinic. And can you get somewhere six or seven days a week on time within that window when you can get your medication? And so the hours, they stop typically at 2.30 and then the clinic shuts down. Uh, there's a few clinics that are open at night, uh, but most clinics are not open in, in the evening. So people are rushing to get to the clinic to get medication. And once that door closes, you don't get your medication. And this is so destructive, right? Because again, interviews I've done around the country, people tell me they get so mad, they go out and use. And if you go out and use now because you can't get your methadone, you're using fentanyl, and you risk overdose, right? So these windows of time to medicate don't work for a lot of people. I, I challenge anybody here to get anywhere on time six or seven days a week, right? Not, not in the world we live in. I'm from New York City, forget it. With the subways, you, you have to leave hours in advance. Um, toxicologies are everything. Your urine is constantly being watched. And if there's anything in there, including alcohol, Right? A lot of clinics screen for alcohol. You can't drink alcohol, really? The last time I checked, alcohol was legal, so they're checking for alcohol. Cannabis, we know cannabis is legal in many states. The urine toxicology drives everything, constantly surveilling, dropping you at any time. I, I want to draw attention to the DCFS dropping hours. That's Department of Children and Family Services. So for those women or men, who are in, on methadone, and if they have a positive talk screen, they could lose their kids. The stakes are so high. And I would submit to you, a urine toxicology doesn't really tell you much about a person and their life. And the fact that they're used to punish people is, is unconscionable. And that's also what they're used for. If a person, again, earns that privilege of taking home medication, if they have a urine that's positive, they're taken away. Um, this one is, um, the, other, the other Jeffrey mentioned this. Uh, when you go up to the bulletproof plexiglass window that the nurse is behind, carceral, hostile architecture, actually, when you go up there, they ask for your number, again, very carceral, and they give you the liquid methadone, they push it through the chuck hole, and they watch you drink it, and then they ask you to either, one, lift up your tongue to inspect if you've taken it, or they say, 
you need to talk to me because you're not believed. And this is something else people have told me from around the country in interviews um, for my documentaries or in, in print. We're just not trusted. We're not even trusted to swallow our medication in front of a nurse, right? So this is the cruelty that is foundational in, in clinics. This is just a sign. Um, I, I took all of these photos, by the way. I've, I've been in several methadone clinics to, to make my documentaries. And there are signs like this all over the place, just you know, reinforcing this massive power differential at every turn, right? I don't think there's any healthcare setting where there is such a massive power differential between patients and staff, right? Methadone clinics control access to the medication that patients need like oxygen. And it's locked behind that bulletproof plexiglass, it's in a massive safe, and the staff controls access to that. And you need that, right? It's not an optional extra to just say, well, I won't do it, right? And that massive power differential, that has to end because that keeps patients vulnerable, uh, obedient, Again, we're going back to the racism and controlling people of color. It all comes back to that. And when I, when I talk to people and they tell me they are afraid uh, when they go to the clinic because they don't know what's gonna happen, right? The nurse might say, oh, your talk screen last week was positive. We're taking away the take-homes or we're dropping your dose or we're increasing your dose. It infuriates me. Mandatory counseling which is really an oxymoron when you think about it, mandatory counseling, you will talk to me. That's a part of many clinics. You, if you don't see your counselor for clinic, um, for counseling, you can be punished. You can and you will be punished. And this is a photo I took and it said, if you don't come to the group, and this is during COVID, telemedicine, if you don't call in, your take-homes will be suspended. So that is what they hold over patients. That's the thing that they have the most power. They'll take away the take-homes. And of course, every patient wants a lot of them. They don't want to go to a clinic six or seven days a week. So here's a sign that says, we will punish you, very out in the open. This is a photo I took recently in San Francisco. This is a Baymark clinic. Um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the for-profit groups really moved into methadone and Baymark is one of them. And so here's a sign that says, if you don't have your counseling, you won't get your medication. Now, to me, this is unethical. This is an ethical violation. Doctors take a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. Withholding medication because someone doesn't have counseling is unconscionable, it's unethical. It's like I wanna call the ACLU and do a class action lawsuit. It's unethical to withhold medication. We don't do that with any other medication, right? No loitering, this is a big deal in clinics if you wanna just read that slide. Uh, Jeffrey, you mentioned NIMBY, the not in my backyard. No community welcomes a methadone clinic. Nothing unites a community more than when a methadone clinic tries to open. They don't want those people, the stigma, the criminalization of people who take methadone. And so every clinic is really concerned about making sure people don't hang around, right? They don't wanna hear from the business associations, they don't wanna hear from community groups, there are people hanging around. One thing we do know, 
and this is really a terrible thing that's directly related to physical clinics, people who deal drugs know where methadone clinics are and often set up and prey on people who are trying not to use. So that is absolutely true. And communities are right to be concerned about that. Another reason, I'm for eliminating clinics altogether. You get rid of NIMBY. But here's the last one, which once again, this is the Family Guidance Center in Chicago. So if you are seen loitering or lingering, you will be immediately placed on involuntary withdrawal. Now the cruelty of that just speaks volumes. That a staff person, somebody who works in a clinic, put that up. They had to talk about that. What are we gonna do if people are loitering outside? We're gonna immediately withdraw them. Again, medical malpractice, unethical. But this is what people who take methadone deal with on a daily basis. And there was a counselor who said to me in, in my new documentary, he was very honest, he said, you never really graduate from this. You cannot get out of the methadone clinic system. And that's what I'm for. I'm for the total elimination of methadone clinics, shutting them all down, moving to prescription parity, and having every person who needs methadone for addiction to be able to pick it up at the pharmacy, like every other medication, the pharmacopoeia. I mean, one of you mentioned methadone is already in the pharmacy. It's available to treat pain. So it's already there. Costs the government nothing to do that because we have a massive overdose crisis on our hands. And the only way we can deal with that to end overdose and also to end racial disparities and access to treatment is to get rid of this clinic system that so oppresses people and move to the system, again, as Dr. Singer talked about, that they have in Britain, New Zealand, Canada. It's really not that hard. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Um, I'm very pleased that we have uh, Representative Donald Norcross with us uh, today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Rep Representative Donald Norcross has represented New Jersey's first congressional district in South Jersey since 2014. He serves on the House Committee on Education and Workforce and its Subcommittee on Health, Employment, Labor, and Pensions. Representative Norcross has been a member of the Bipartisan Addiction and Mental Health Task Force and directly related to the topic of today's event, earlier this year he introduced the Modernizing Opioid Treatment Access Act which seeks to increase access to methadone treatment and is the most significant attempt at reforming our current uh, system of treating uh, opioid use disorder, I think, since the 1970s. So with, without further ado, let me introduce Representative Norcross. Thank you for coming. Hi, Mr. Norcross. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Ah, well, good morning, good afternoon, wherever we are. And uh, my apologies, I was running a little bit late. I uh, was in a hearing, but, uh, well, I've been to Cato many times, but primarily because of defense issues. And I, I gotta tell you, it is great to be back to talking about something that is personal to me. That just listening to some of the previous comments on 
the challenges that we have, as a nation are facing, but quite frankly, the world is facing when it comes to overdoses, just nothing short of remarkable, but certainly the United States is unfortunately uh, way ahead of the game in terms of that 100,000 plus. It's, it's stunning. And I will be bold and say that there's probably not a person in this room or who's watching who has not been touched in some fashion, brother, sister, mom, dad, neighbor, friend, and it has touched me. You mentioned the uh, bipartisan uh, mental health caucus where it actually started out as a heroin caucus and I said, we might wanna change that because it's more than just that and, and the idea of addictions, you know, being a disease and the stigma that we all know that is attached to that. You know, if you go back 100 years, 75 years, alcohol, you know, had that stigma. But we, as a country, have learned to deal with that a little bit better. But the stigma when it comes to the addiction, particularly with the heroin, the fentanyl, and so many things, the drugs, we have a very different view. So, Dr. Singer and Dr. Simon, thank you for your presentations, I, I read quite a bit about what we're talking about today, and it, it's good to be here because it is National Recovery Month and International Overdose Awareness Day, which was August 31st. It's kind of ironic that we even have to have that, but the reality is we know what's going on. And you had mentioned a bill, and I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later on, but let me tell you just personally, I'm, I'm not your average member of Congress, I'm an electrician by trade. I worked out in the field, and this is where addiction first touched my life, in that many of the people who work in construction, we are disproportionately hurt physically on the job. You go, you get your arm, your leg fixed, and what do they give you? Yes, the painkillers. And unfortunately, I saw too many uh, get caught in the grip of addiction, and we lost many of them. But I didn't understand it the way I do now. I live in the city of Camden, directly across from downtown Philadelphia. Typical urban center. And a few years back, there was one of the major northeast snowstorms. Literally shut down the city and the region. But we have a subway system. And I lived up on the fifth floor. And you could see out there in the snow, there's nothing moving except for footprints in the snow coming from the subway to the methadone clinic. And it just, if you've ever been in a snowstorm, it's peaceful, it's quiet, but those needing their methadone had to go. There was no, I'll skip a day, I got medication at home. And that just really started me thinking, then I had a real opportunity to meet with the Dr. Caitlin Bastian. She, from Cooper Hospital Medical Center right in my uh, city, she was the head of addiction medicine and we were at an event where they were opening a new clinic. And she and I started to have a conversation about access to methadone and educated me on what other countries were doing. I found it remarkable and started to think about it from a different perspective. Because when we think of our complex healthcare system, I mean, obviously we have people who are very much aware of that up here today. It's a big deal. You know, 
pharmaceutical companies of research. Methadone has a big asterisk. Now it has two, it has three asterisks next to it because we treat that different than anything else in the world. Been around for a long time, but somehow each morning you have to get up somehow in the grip of addiction, you're gonna have great transportation and access to a clinic that is conveniently located in an area. Sarcasm's running pretty deep here. And waiting that dehumanizing line, as I call it, cattle going to slaughter. But that's the way we've set the system up. And I literally said there's gotta be a better way. And by the way, Dr. Bastin is now the health commissioner, acting health commissioner of state of New Jersey who is keeping this ball going because we have to change the way this is being done. You know, it is a vicious cycle of addiction. I have buried friends who've gone through that. So here we are, the OTPs, the opioid treatment programs. And I will call them openly a cartel. Some people get offended by that. And I suggest, would you please go to the Webster Dictionary where it defines a cartel as a combination of independent commercial or industrial enterprises designed to limit competition or fix prices. I don't have to say anything more than that. That's exactly what the clinics are doing. Now, not all clinics are bad. Certainly not all are good. But the system is broken, and it's controlled, and it has to change. That's why I introduced the MOTA, the Modernizing Opiate Treatment Access Act. You know, we heard just recently as watching this films, the cartels control every aspect of that patient's life. Now, I will suggest to you that addicts are not always the most cooperative and kind folks, they're going through an incredible time. But the idea that you have to find your way to the clinic each and every day is nothing short of remarkable. And the idea of having a conversation, which I've had for close to four years now, trying to work out an accommodation that we can move forward to look at this a little bit differently. And the papers that uh, the gentlemen have written to my left literally lay out some of those challenges. You know, some states or a state has zero. The idea of being able to address your challenges of addiction and then at some point try to get your life back in order and going to your employer and say, by the way, I'm gonna be uh, late every day. I have to go down to X amount city and, and get my uh, treatment. For what? Which the stigma and the lie starts right there. It's not a good way to do it. And we know around this world there are other ways to do it. That to get methadone is more difficult than getting the opiates. It's just something that needs to change. So. They have to hold a job, they have to raise their children, if they have those, trying to get their life back in order. This is a challenge, and they're directly in conflict with the system that has been set up. 
There's no other medicine that we can compare to it, literally, and it has been that way for years. So the bipartisan bill that I spoke of, Don Bacon is my co-sponsor in the House, and in the Senate we have uh, Markey, Senator Markey, and Rand Paul, who he and I typically are not on the same bills, but he understands some of the challenges here. So let me be clear. I agree with you fully. I think the system should be eliminated. But I also understand that it is a complex system, and in order to change it, it needs to be incremental. You just don't turn the system overnight. We want to make sure that at the end of the day that we are increasing the ability for treatment and access to the methadone. So the idea of having this conversation and moving it forward, we, as part of what I looked at as a negotiation, tried to have the conversation where only those who specialize in addictive medicine would be able to prescribe. Not the, the first idea, but trying to meet in the middle. And I thought we were very close to having this done. And unfortunately, because of factors that you could probably guess, uh, this is being held up in the House uh, Energy and Commerce Committee because of, I would call them straight out, excuses that this will allow too much access to methadone and it will be abused. And I'm, really, folks, come on. This is the cartel who wants to control it. They take offense to that, please do, because it happens to be true. Not all of them, but this is something that we can do to change it. And one of the issues, <laughs> and this is, forgive me for those in the medical profession, is one of the reasons why they want to keep it, and they use this quite often, is because they don't think doctors will be able to prescribe this properly. They don't trust doctors. Well, that's why you do go to medical school. That's why you do learn. And there are mistakes every day in the medical profession, but holistically, this is exactly what we can do. You know, Narcan in New Jersey was earth-shaking the way that we allowed it to be prescribed. We eliminated it. It's now in school buses. It's in schools. You can go pick it up and mandate it that pharmacies carry it to give access. And the fact of the matter is, under this bill, doctors will be able to prescribe it. Doctors will be able to look at their patient like they do anybody else and monitor their progress and make judgments the way doctors do each and every day with the host of issues that we as Americans face. So at the end of the day, I'm not looking for a battle here. I'm looking for a life preserver for all those in the grip of addiction who find that the challenges of getting their methadone or other prescriptions a challenge to the way that they can find a recovery to come, become productive members of society, that we are all in this together because it's not the addict who dies, it's those around him who lose a piece of themselves. So I think we as a country, it's time that we come together and this venue and this discussion that we're having today, I think can be incredibly helpful for those listening to reach out to the representatives and say, this isn't about dollars and cents. This is about saving lives, doing medically what is done in every other disease. And with that, I want to thank the panelists up here for today for what you're doing on this behalf. 
for those in the audience and certainly those who are watching this, that no American needs to die because they did not have access to life-saving medicines and treatment. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, it, right, you, you have to head back to the, we have to the a few yeah. minutes. Oh, great. Um, wonderful. Um, why don't you have this seat? And, uh, and if it's, it's called an audible at the line. Okay. So, uh, uh, is anybody in the, in the audience has a question for Representative Norcross? If not, I do. Oh, sure. Wait, wait for the mic to come around. And if you could announce, your, give us your name and your organization, if you have one. Oh, there, there. Uh, hi, my name is K.M. Bell. Um, thank you for being here today, Congressman. Uh, before you arrived, we heard a lot about stigma and the separation of opioid treatment from the entire rest of the medical system, a bunch of unnecessary restrictions that come from presumably moral judgments and politics and not medicine. And it sounded an awful lot like abortion clinics. And I wonder, regardless, you know, of I'm, your beliefs on that, if there's anything that can be learned from that policy debate that might be applicable here. Interesting that you bring it up with abortion. I have not looked at it through that lens. Um, I, I strictly look at it through two lenses, the human factor and certainly from a medical standpoint. Uh, obviously, I have um, many people that I know in the profession and it's unparalleled. How we got there can be up for debate, certainly the timing, what was going on in the country, the 70s, and quite frankly, even before that, was a very different world. But we have uh, understood that it is a very different world, and from a medical standpoint, from a mental health, and just look where we've gone with the idea of mental health and the discussions around that. And this falls into the same thing, that the stigma is still incredibly tough. The bipartisan mental health uh, task force we have, it's interesting. Each session where new members uh, come in, it, it's actually the largest caucus, that bipartisan caucus we have. But during the year, occasionally we'll get a new member in the middle of the term, which is a little unusual. And I'm paraphrasing, but they'll come in and they've lost somebody very close to them. And they say, now explain this to me. It's that personal touch, like, you know, it's not a socioeconomic issue. It happens everywhere. You know, he was a good kid. He was raised with everything, and he overdosed. And that's starting to touch, unfortunately, more and more people. And I think that is what is helping to break down the stigma. You know, the idea years ago of getting a bad batch of heroin you know, they could literally follow it uh, from a criminal standpoint of where it came through. Today, it's a crapshoot on anything. You have no idea. And that is just throwing a wild card into the, quote, the weekend recreational users, which just complicates everything. So I'm going more to the stigma issue than the addiction issue. But I, I don't relate it to the abortion issue or clinics whatsoever. Thank you.
we have time for another question? I want to ask you. If they uh, start yelling at me, that means okay. I'll have to. <laughs> Just for the audience to know, the representative is going to have to head back to Capitol Hill, so that's why I'm taking advantage of this opportunity. Um, as since politics is the art of the possible, um, what are you finding? Is your are you what? What are you getting your greatest pushback on this from? Is it from OTPs themselves, or is it from people who just uh, have the uh, members of Congress who have who have uh, a different understanding of what addiction is, or is it uh, from different medical specialists? So, quite frankly, it's all three. Number one, it's it used to be a lack of a broader understanding, but unfortunately, as I mentioned, so many more are starting to understand that because of constituents, their personal lives, and what's going on, that it is the disease of addiction. Unfortunately, it's getting sucked up into the immigration issue and border issue, which I completely want to stay away from. Uh, I think that complicates it way too much. But the idea of how we can address it politically comes down to is the cartel. And listen, I did not start off this way. I started off with what I believe were good faith negotiations on how can we start to move the system. And I don't think in, at the end of the day they were good faith on some people's parts. So the idea of now calling them out for what they are is a cartel who is trying to control this. Unlike any other medication, principally we hear two issues. Number one is that only certain doctors are able to do this. You have to be the specialist in order to do it, and I spoke about that briefly. But the second issue is that methadone will now be widely abused. Okay, well, each time we've made incremental adjustments, whether it was because of the pandemic and some of the waivers we were able to have put in place to allow them to come home, quite frankly, has not materialized. And yes, there is abuse, but there's abuse of many types of drugs. And the idea of holding back the ability for people to get a much wider breadth of uh, their uh, treatment without the cartel system of clinics, I think, is will show. And again, let's do it incrementally. We can't even get that far. So it is being held up, quite frankly, by a few of the leadership who uh, is only listening to the cartel group. Even, even though we've had experience during the pandemic that uh, when people had to take on methadone, it didn't get abused. Part of the bill that we were able to pass last year and sign a law <laughs> was to do the study actually in more detail to show that there weren't the adverse effects that we were sure. Because listen, we didn't know, but here was a great example of what happened during the pandemic that it didn't happen. And again, the idea of being monitored by a medical professional is the very basics of what doctors do. They want to monitor these and their conditions and plenty of protocols for them to follow. Uh, unfortunately, there are some that will not make it, but certainly that's happening today at the, the clinics the way they are now. So I think we have to push past this to incrementally, I would like for it to switch overnight, but that's quite frankly, I don't see a reality, incrementally push this down the line because the idea of uh, 100,000 people a year dying and access completely limited depending on where you live is unacceptable. Mr. Norcross, I just quickly want to um, ask you, uh, 
Why is your bill limiting the ability to prescribe methadone outside of the clinic system to board-certified addiction specialists? I see that as a huge problem because there's hundreds of thousands of people who need access to methadone. 5,000 addiction specialists can't even scale that up. And so why, why is your bill not including primary care doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants? You know, I'm touring across the country with my documentary and going to rural communities. All they have is a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. So I see your bill having a very limited impact and we've got to make methadone easier to get than fentanyl. Yes. It was about negotiating, trying to get something through Congress, signed into law. And the idea of doing it that way, quite frankly, uh, we saw no pathway doing it absolute. Those were part of the negotiations we held over a number of years. And these were movements on both sides trying to come to a common ground to get it passed. That's quite frankly it's it, because I agree with you. Mm -hmm. However, the one thing, if this does pass, or I should say when it does pass, it will show that it's working, and then we can go back and make the fix more permanent and more widespread. But this was to address some of the major concerns that they had. It's called our political system. <laughs> so we can wait. I, I can yeah. introduce that bill tomorrow. But if it doesn't pass, then where are we? That's the challenge that we face. Yeah. So, so when you become queen of the world, you can make this come in. But unfortunately, this is a system. It's democracy. We have all 50 states, representatives with very different views. And I think that if we can break down the blockade in uh, one of the committees, and make this a much wider distribution of knowledge, I think we can get things done. But I agree with the concept. Yeah, and I'd like to talk to you at some point privately about it. Thank you, I think uh, the yeah, congressman They're giving me a signal. <laughs> well, again, thank you very much, appreciate thank it. Thank you very much, appreciate it. Thank you for the bill. Take care, be talking to you. So uh, we're going to continue with our question and answer session. I want to ask a question of my panel. Um, first of all, I wanted to know, I think I'll first ask Dr. Samet, because he, he, being that he's a physician, he might have more experience with this. What are your thoughts about, uh, we hear a lot of people in Congress pushing Vivitrol and Naltrexone, uh, and many skeptics of harm reduction trumpet it. Um, my understanding of the, the research is that it really doesn't seem to be very effective. There have been some comparative effectiveness studies suggesting it, it doesn't work well at all. But I'd like to hear what you think about it. So there are three medications to treat opioid use disorder. Naltrexone, of which Vivitrol is a long-acting version that lasts for a month in injection, buprenorphine, and methadone. The data for mortality decrease is clear for methadone and buprenorphine. So for that reason alone, they would be the go-to medications. In truth, they're probably in the same ballpark, so it's more like patient preference. Vivitrol, <clears throat> I have had patients, and you'll hear from other docs that like it or want to go for it. It's better than nothing, 
and it can help some people um, a lot. They don't tend to stay on it as long, but um, I would say a medication that works, keep on the table, but I wouldn't prioritize it. You have any thoughts about that? Well, I'm just hearing again from traveling around the country and talking to lots of different people about methadone. There are a lot of people who are fine. It's still anecdotal. I think there might be one study out that because of the power of fentanyl, you really need methadone to keep people from going into withdrawal. Fentanyl is so powerful, right? Even buprenorphine, they're finding in some cases, just don't hold people. So naltrexone doesn't even enter into the picture for me in terms of that. So we really need easier access to methadone just because of the power of fentanyl. That, that's what I'm hearing around the country. Uh, one uh, person has a question online that I, I'll answer because it's really easy, um, which is, which is the state that doesn't have an OTP? Uh, that's Wyoming. Uh, in our paper, we found not, Wyoming doesn't have any OTP, so we, we had no data we can get on it. And it only has uh, five board-certified addiction specialists in the entire state. So if you have an opioid use disorder, you may have to travel literally hundreds of miles to, 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 to even get to see an addiction specialist who might be totally booked and not taking any new patients. Um, and uh, one more question I'd like to ask, Helen, and then next, uh, Jeffrey. So are there services that the OTPs offer that couldn't be offered in primary care practitioners' uh, offices? No. I mean, <clears throat> when I, I look at methadone as a medication, and any other medication that we take doesn't come with constantly testing a person's urine, mandatory counseling, mandatory groups. So I, you know, I used to be a, a medical social worker, and if somebody had an addiction, the doctor or nurse practitioner would ref refer that person to me. And if they needed housing or if they needed access to SNAP benefits, that was my job to do that. So I'm very confident when, because I believe we are going to be able to move methadone out of the, uh, the clinic system entirely, when that person comes to see you and they have social service needs, you have a social worker or some other person that you can refer them to to help meet, meet those needs. I did it for years. So the, the system is in place. So no, OTPs, uh, counseling, I, I made a short video about this. I interviewed a woman who um, it was the executive director of a clinic. And the counseling is about money. It's about profit. So they bill $45 for a 15-minute session, which, in her opinion, isn't even counseling. So follow the profit. We know toxicology screenings also generate revenue. So we need to look at profit and the profit motive when we see people having to come six or seven days a week. It's about the money. That's also a piece of this I think we need to talk about more. So uh, there's no question the money is one piece, but I would say that the structure of the methadone clinic it can be very helpful for some patients, uh, particularly early on when um, life can be very disorganized for someone who's just getting into recovery or willing to try uh, a medication for opioid use disorder. So I am, I'm of the view that 
yeah, there are 400,000 people on it. I'm not looking to, some of them, if it was to open up, would want to transition, great. But some of them would like that setting, and for some people who aren't in the setting yet, that may be the right setting. So it isn't one or the other from my point of view, it's just that we are needlessly uh, not taking advantage of one option that, as we talked about, takes care of a lot of issues. So you envision uh, uh, primary care clinicians being able to treat OUD alongside OTPs and, and basically people with a problem have these options. That's how you envision it. Uh, yeah, I mean, right now, <clears throat> the multidisciplinary care that was noted happens with buprenorphine treatment, which is going on in primary care. And the best programs have social workers, nurses, people very involved in the care in addition to the doctors. Um, and so it is a team effort. If methadone was to come to primary care, just like it is a methadone clinic, there'd be a team effort for that too, ideally. You know, as long as we're, there's a question, an online question that's uh, uh, along those same lines, which is, uh, and it's a reasonable question, why do some people prefer methadone over easily available suboxone or buprenorphine? I, I, yeah, um, I don't know why some people prefer one or the other, but I do know that some people prefer one or the other, and uh, you can't predict. That's why I, I mentioned before something about patient choice. Um, patients often, many of them will have tried more than one, and you can have that conversation of what would they prefer. Some of them would prefer methadone, but the structure of the clinic makes them opt for the buprenorphine, the suboxone. Um, so uh, choice and options is great. And it's like marketing 101 from what I hear. You know, you have different things out there, more people might take advantage of it. I, I think when we talk about suboxone and methadone, again, the racial disparities are evident. New England Journal of Medicine has a new article out where they talk about how 85% of people who take buprenorphine are white, and that number hasn't moved substantially since it was approved in, in 2000. You know, this is a medication that was developed um, in a very different way than methadone, right? It's office-based, you can get a prescription for a month, um, there's no counseling requirements. It's not put in jail, right? It's not carceral. It's a medication, right? There are some. There have been some constraints over the years. We can we can talk about that. But it was a drug that was marketed specifically towards a white group of people um, in the suburbs, uh, people who had been addicted to prescription medications. So, uh, I think it's important um, to note that black and brown folks are not offered buprenorphine as much as white patients are, and that's one of the reasons um, more people of color are not on this. Medications. There's pockets of the country where that's not true, but again, the racial disparities, it's really easy to see when you look at Suboxone and you look at methadone. Who is on those medications? Essentially, methadone is for people of color and buprenorphine from its conception. And you go into the congressional record and look at this, how they worked with Reckett Benkeiser to market it, where it was gonna go. Uh, we know that with buprenorphine, at least initially, people paid out of pocket, right, and used commercial insurance. Medicaid is the largest payer 
uh, for, for methadone. So for me, when I look at these two drugs, it's really important to note the racial disparities and how are we gonna eliminate them? And for me, if you get rid of a clinic system and anybody can provide it, that is the way to eliminate racial disparities in access to medications for opioid use disorder. I just want to say my review of the literature, and I don't know if you, if, if you have this, come to the same conclusion, is that it looks as if um, there's no clear distinction in terms of efficacy between buprenorphine or methadone. It's sort of, uh, in some cases, buprenorphine works better, other cases, methadone works better, and it's sort of uh, the, the, the clinician and the patient need to kind of figure out which is best for their situation. Right, I think that's the point. Yeah. Even if nothing else, get on naltrexone. Uh, but my first two choices would be methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, I have an online question from Paul Larkin at the Heritage Foundation. Um, he says, can telemedicine be used to increase the number of certified addiction specialists? If so, who, who needs to approve it, the federal government or the states? Um, I'm, you want to feel that? My, I, I think, I mean, uh, in terms of practicing addiction medicine across state lines using telemedicine, uh, we're unfortunately um, obstructed by state licensing laws. So, you know, you can't practice, <coughs> unless, unless states change their licensing laws, you can't practice across state lines without a license in another state. But um, I don't know if, if that's what he means. Um, can you, because you can't, get certified through, I guess you could take courses online to, to become yeah, certified, yeah, yeah. but. Um, I'm ignorant. I've heard this come up before. I haven't heard the definitive answer, so I don't want to share what I don't know. How about you? I would just say, in general, I think telemedicine is really great. It's one of the lessons we learned from the pandemic, that you can actually begin induction of medication using telemedicine, and it, it it has the potential to get more people on these life-saving medications, so I want more of that. Yeah, that, that's all true, but your question about overstate lines is a technical issue, which I'm yeah. not sure the answer. So, because that's a problem, I mean, it would be great if, <coughs> uh, would take care if of. you're in a state like Wyoming and right. you need to access an addiction specialist, and you could do it by telemedicine and, and access an addiction specialist in, in, in any state. Uh, but unfortunately, state occupational licensing laws stand in the way of that. It's, it's a barrier. Yeah, that that's not just with um, methadone. It's with anything. Buprenorphine. It's yeah. It's the system. Um, in countries, I have another question online here. In questions, in countries with uh, OTPs and primary care as both options, which I think most countries, the other three countries that we've been discussing, you you, you could go to either to the clinic setting or to the primary care setting. Uh, does anybody have an idea of what percentage of people with OUD in those countries take advantage of the primary care setting versus going to the, a, a, a center? Well, it's an empiric question. We don't know the answer. Um, but in these other countries where they have both, both systems exist. Um, and, and people who get more stable will often opt for the less... Um, restrictive uh, uh, treatment program. I like, I have, and I have a question that I was planning to ask. Uh, I hear this a lot where people 
basically poo-poo methadone treatment by saying you're just replacing one addiction with another. Um, I even recall, I think, uh, you know, in the previous administration, the regional secretary of HHS said that, uh, Tom, Tom Price, who's a physician. Um, like you comment, both of you, to comment on, the, on that uh, notion. It, it's just, um, when you see people turn their lives around when they get on the medicine, and that's the, one of the joys of practicing medicine, when you see they turn their lives around, that whole perspective, which maybe theoretically is interesting, is hogwash. People turn their lives around, they get back with their loved ones. You saw the data in terms of all the positive outcomes on it. So uh, empirically, they are great medicines. And the replacing it is um, not going to help the individual. That, that Believing that you're just replacing it um, is not going to help the individual. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said that to me when I was interviewing them or when I was doing medical social work, I would be rich. Uh, this is one of the, this is a relic of stigma and it's a misunderstanding of medications that are made for maintenance, right? Uh, we all, or many of us, take medication every single day, right? We're gonna be on it for, I'm on one, I'll probably be on it until the day I die. And it makes my life possible, right? Uh, but my medication isn't stigmatized, but, but method, methadone is. And even buprenorphine has a little bit of a stigma. And this notion, you've got to get off, you've got to get off. Well, no, you don't. You stay on it as long as it's working for you. But I think adding into that, we're a country that really values abstinence from all substances, even though we're the, uh, the country that uses the most drugs of any country in the world, right? Uh, we value abstinence. Somehow that's, a, that's morally good. And if you want abstinence, abstinence and you can achieve that, good on you. But there's a lot of people who will need to be on medications. I, I, I would argue, I define abstinence when they talk about that as being on medications to not be using drugs. Okay. <coughs> so okay. methadone or buprenorphine, you're not using drugs, you're abstinent. Mm -hmm. I, I recall uh, hearing um, Maya Salas, who many in this audience are familiar with, uh, who has written extensively about this, uh, describing how what, uh, methadone helps. She said, when you're suddenly on methadone, you have a whole, if, if you've been battling, you're living in the streets sometimes, uh, battling opioid use disorder, you suddenly have a lot of time on your hands because uh, you don't have to spend your whole day trying to figure out how to come up with the money to purchase the black market drug. You don't have to figure out a way to meet the person in a way that, where you don't get caught. So now, all of a sudden, you could start getting your life stabilized. You could maybe reestablish relationships again, get a job, and that's really what helps people recover. And um, if it turns out that you need to take this particular substance for the rest of your life, I mean, many don't, many eventually you know, get tapered off, but if, if, you, if you did, but it's enabling you to have a fulfilling, productive life, then mm -hmm. that's a win. Right, and, and in other countries, um, they have heroin-assisted treatment, so people stay on, on heroin for as long as they need to. In Canada, um, they have a pilot program where people are being given fentanyl 
uh, in other countries, um, slow-acting morphine. So the idea is you get people on an opioid that works the best for them, and you stay on it as long as you need to. It's really a mistake to uh, try to convince people to taper down when they're not ready, especially in the era of the fentanyl apocalypse. It is enormously dangerous. So we have to fight that stigma all the time. Again, and people that I've talked to, they've wanted to switch over to buprenorphine so they can get out of jail, essentially. They want to live a normal life, and they try, and they can't. Buprenorphine doesn't work for them like methadone, methadone does. And so this pressure on people to stop using these medications is very dangerous, and we have to confront that. Yeah. Um in fact, not to plug uh, our policy analysis from last week again, but I do want to plug it again. We have a discussion about uh, heroin-assisted treatment. We talk a little bit about uh, naltrexone and other modalities besides uh, methadone. And uh, in fact, on the digital version, there's a, a brief video uh, of uh, Dr. Scott McDonald, who runs the heroin-assisted treatment program in Vancouver, British Columbia, explaining how it works. So again, I encourage people to go to our policy analysis, which you can access on the event webpage. 